0: I, I got to tell you, I'm just digging the book of Galatians. I, I don't know about you, but I, I love doing this. I, I, I don't mind taking us through leadership times like we did recently with our capital campaign, but during the whole thing, the whole time I'm thinking, I can't wait to get done with this and move on to this, meaning the book of Galatians. I, I got into ministry, I went to seminary, because I love God's Word, I love Him. I love you, and I like to bring it all together. And, and so I, I got a guy I, I meet with on Friday mornings as part of a men's group that I'm in, and he's a, he's a doc in North Scottsdale, and he'll periodically say to me, your life makes me sick. And I'll say, why is that? He'll say, you know, I, I'm going into surgery today, you know, uh, Matt's going to go do accounting, and Mitch is going to go do real estate, and you get to go home and study the Bible all day. He goes, I just, I love your life. And I say, well, it's not all roses, but I I, I agree with you. I am blessed, and, and I love to do what I do. So Bill Hybels once said that if your people want gourmet food on Sunday morning, you better spend gourmet time in the kitchen. And so I do. And I spend a lot of time in preparation for just the next half hour, and uh, I so look forward to it. And and so let's pray and ask God's time, ask His blessing on our time in His Word. God these dear people have come here to worship you, some of them to seek you, uh, to relate to each other, and to grow in our walk with you. And I pray, God, that as we've sung, as we've commissioned our our missionaries for this year, as we have uh, been ministered to by the choir, as we now turn to your Word, God, would you give us something to latch on to for the week ahead, for the month ahead, for our life ahead, as we continue to plumb the depths of your truth as we follow you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I never stop being amazed at how God reveals himself in a myriad of ways to his creation, you and me, whom he loves. For instance, I know people who have found God and his son Jesus initially just through being in nature. They were hiking in the Grand Tetons, or they were watching a sunset over the Pacific, or they were gazing at the stars on a crisp, clear night. And it hit them that this all couldn't have been an accident, that there must be a grand creator who made all of this, and this began a journey for them uh, to the point that they realized that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for them, that Jesus Christ is their Lord and their Savior. God revealed Himself to them through, initially, nature. And then I know people who have been moved to seek out the Trinitarian God through seeing a baby born or even watching a toddler. It is true. They marveled at the intricacy, the complexity, the beauty of a newborn baby, or the curiosity and freedom of a growing toddler, and it hit them that this kind of beauty and freedom has to connote some sort of plan, some sort of purpose or meaning behind the universe, or it just wouldn't make sense. And again, this began a journey. For them, all the way to the point that they discovered the gospel and came to faith in Christ, the Trinitarian God, revealing himself through a a tiny baby or small child, And then I know how some of you think. You're thinking, well, that's not me. That's kind of mushy and, and, you know, very experiential. No, I'm more more thinking-oriented in the way that I process things. Well, that's good because I know people who have found God and His Son Jesus through intellectual inquiry and reasoning, what we call in the church, apologetics. In other words, these are people who had tough questions that required cogent and well-thought-out answers, Questions like this, what about science? Doesn't that rule out faith? What about those who have never heard? What about suffering and pain? How could a good God allow so much suffering in this world? And so through a rigorous pursuit in finding answers to tough and honest questions, eventually these folks had their their intellect satisfied, and this, in part, was the pathway for them coming to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God reveals himself. In and through our minds, and the seeking of answers to honest, albeit tough questions. And then, surprising to me, at least 30 years ago when I first became a Christian, I met people who found God in the midst of their pain and the difficult circumstances that life can present the loss of someone very close to them, the disillusionment that comes from a marital breakdown, the pain of a nagging and debilitating depression or the collapse of well-earned financial security. And though one might think initially that these kinds of circumstances would create more distance with God, and certainly there are times when it does, more often God actually uses these events in our lives and meets us in the midst of pain and reveals Himself to us in our pain, and we realize who Jesus is, and we find Him through the gospel. Think about it, folks. So many ways that God reveals himself to his creation whom he loves. And though in the examples that I just used, I, I kept saying that we find God in and through these avenues, what you learned very quickly, it was actually God who found us in these avenues. Amen? It really was. We'll talk about this more in a minute. But it's really God seeking us. And what I marvel at is how God uses all these different avenues to find us in our lostness. And yet here's the deal. As good and wonderful as mountains and newborn babies and intellectual apologetics and pain turned to purpose are in discovering God and the gospel, I would submit to you this morning that nothing compares to how God uses the journey of an authentic life to show Himself to others. It's true. I'm going to show you this in in the Word here in a minute. But organic human being to organic human being with God-infused spiritual truth all wrapped up in it is the preferred methodology of how God chooses to introduce himself to others. It's Abraham's journey affecting Isaac. It's Nathan's journey affecting David. It's Daniel's journey affecting Nebuchadnezzar. It's Paul's journey affecting Timothy. You get the idea. And the main question that I have before you this morning is, could it be that your journey with the Lord is designed specifically to lead somebody else to the Lord? Because you see, this is precisely what Paul the Apostle goes on now to talk about and model for us in the next section of the New Testament book of Galatians, the book that we're studying this year here at Scottsdale Bible. And so let's unpack this a bit. If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to pick up this week at verse 11, and we're going to make our way through verse 24, the end of the chapter here this morning. So Galatians 1 beginning at verse 11. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's the Scripture on your outline as well as up here on the screen. And as you're turning there, here is your main point this morning. It's a very life-altering thing if you can latch on to this and live it. And it's the heart of the latter half of Galatians 1, and it's this. God reveals Himself to us, you and me, and then He uses our journey to show Himself to others. I'm telling you, this will rock your world once you latch onto this. This is how God wants to move in and through your life. He reveals himself to you and me, us, and then he uses our journey, our story, if you will, uh, to show himself to others. So what are we talking about? I want you to look with me at how Paul the Apostle begins this section of Scripture in a highly autobiographical way. Look at verses 11 to 12. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So don't miss what he's getting at here. He's simply saying that his life-changing and eternity-determining experience with Jesus Christ and his gospel is not something invented or made up by humankind. No, it's something that truly and really comes from God himself. He's saying that the gospel is not the product of anything that human beings have conjured up, like so many of the things that were going on in Paul's world back then, the stories of Zeus and Hermes and Apollos and all these Greek gods that were obviously made up. He's saying it's not like that at all. He's saying, no, the gospel is something that has originated and been revealed by Almighty God himself, the Trinitarian God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's his main argument here. He's saying, I just gotta let you guys know something. I didn't make this up. This has come to me from God himself. As C.S. Lewis said so well in the last century, he said, and I quote, Christianity must be from God for who else could have thought it up? And that's precisely what Paul is saying here. He's saying he's experienced the risen Jesus. We'll get to that in a minute. And because he hasn't had an experience with the living Jesus, an experience that was all about God reaching out to him and giving him the forgiveness that his soul so desperately needed, that this shows that the gospel is authentic and from God. That's the argument that he's making. Now, what I need you and I to wrestle with right now is that once you latch on to that, how do you actually prove that? I mean, once you and I make the claim that the gospel is not made up, because people do give that accusation against you and I as Christians, they right? They'll say, you know, this is a bunch of myths. This thing was made up. Like a bunch of guys sat around 2,000 years ago and said, let's invent a religion. And they thought up Jesus and they wrote it down. And I was, We all heard that argument. Once you and I say, no, that's not true, this is actually originated from God himself and been revealed to us by God. How do you and I prove that? How do we lay credence to the claim that the gospel is not something that we made up, that it's a God-begun entity, not a man-invented entity? Well, think about it. We could use Apologetics a defense from history, reason, philosophy, or defending the accuracy of the gospel stories themselves, and that would be good to do. We could even argue from nature or beauty or complexity of a human baby or the meaning that Christianity brings in the midst of pain, and that would be a good thing to do. And all of this would be good and fine, and they have their place But what I find most fascinating about what Paul does here in Galatians 1 is that as he lays out this claim that the gospel came to me directly from God, he then uses as his main mode of argument his journey, the details of his personal pathway to God, and this becomes his main argument as to why and how the gospel originates from God. I find it fascinating. And let me show you what I mean. I want to spend a few minutes here in some detailed exegesis. And I want to talk to you about, I want you to notice, I'm sorry, how Paul goes on in the entire remainder of this chapter to simply talk about his experience with Christ, his before Christ experience, what we're going to label BC, his cross experience when he came to Christ, and then his AD experience, what's happened since then. So first, notice his before Christ experience. He goes on to say in verses 13 and 14, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. So three things you're going to want to latch on to that Paul's saying about his life before Christ. And tell me if this isn't true. He was saying, I was angry, I was ambitious, and I was advancing. That's what he's saying. I was angry, ambitious, and advancing. He's obviously saying he was angry. Look at verse 13 again. He says, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I don't know. That sounds like an angry dude if you ask me. And he's talking obviously about what happened in Acts chapters 7 and 8 when he oversaw the stoning of Stephen and when he tried to persecute or did persecute the church all through chapters 7 and 8. And that word violently back here in Galatians 1, translated by the New International Version as intensely, literally means beyond measure. He's saying, I was so violent against the church and against Christians that I couldn't even measure it he said, I was so angry at the church and angry at anybody that would disagree with my worldview, and I was bothered with, by people that weren't like myself, that this just drove me in my life. And you say, well, why was he like that? Why was he so angry? Well, he goes on to say in verse 14b, because I was ambitious. He says, I was extremely zealous, I, extremely zealous I was for the traditions of my father's. You see, Paul's religion, as you guys know, was Judaism, but he wasn't like just a regular Jew. He was what we call a Pharisee, which I guess in today's world, he would have been like a Shiite Jew. I mean, Paul was just like rabid about his faith. Pharisees back then didn't just have to live the Old Testament law. They had actually developed by that time, the time of Paul, 613 additional prescriptions. That's what he means by the traditions of my fathers. 613 additional commands that Pharisees had to obey. 248 of them were positive do's, and 365 of them were negative don'ts. So you guys know some people that live their religion more by do's and don'ts? Well, Paul rocked at that. I mean, he said, I got, I got one for every day, 365 don'ts that I've added to my faith. And he's going basically going on to say here in a second here, a- and I excelled at this. I mean, he rocked in his religion. He did everything to the tilt. He was very, very ambitious. And as a result of that, he said, I was advancing. He says in verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. So Paul was an early achiever. He he was a a YPO member, Young Presidents Organization. I I mean, maybe look at it this way. He was the Bill Gates of Pharisees. I mean, he developed his trade early on, and he was the name in, in Palestine back then, in the Holy Land, when it came to being a Pharisee. So don't miss this. Angry, ambitious, and advancing. It's exactly what he says, and, you know, it's ironic when I realized that just a few weeks ago in my study, I thought, I know a lot of businessmen like that today. <laughs> Isn't that true? I, I, I mean, you ask a businessman who's just all caught up in the world today, maybe he hasn't yet found Christ, and you ask his wife to describe your husband, I'm telling you, I've heard many times, well, my husband's an angry guy, and, and he's very ambitious, but he's doing really well in his career. He's advancing. And see, that's exactly what Paul's saying. This was my life before Christ. And yet all of this was about to change because look at how he describes then in the next two verses, his Christ experience. He says in verses 15 to 16, but when he, God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. So once again, notice three handles he gives us here. He says, I was chosen, I was called and it was all about Christ. Chosen, called Christ. And notice in verse 15a, he says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, he's saying I was chosen. Uh, you know, it, it's very vogue today when we describe our conversion to Christ as Christians to talk about all the things that we did. You ever notice that? You know, he said, I was seeking, and I went to church, or I watched the 700 Club, or I went to a men's group, or whatever, and then so-and-so shared their faith with me, and then I accepted Christ, I did a prayer, I walked an aisle. And all that's true, by the way. Those are all things that you did. But you know, God pulls a fast one, and right after you get done with saying I, he says, oh, by the way, I was the one really doing all of it. I was the one who chose you, as Paul says here, even set apart in your mother's womb. David would say the same thing. God was there. He knew. He had a plan for my life. And Paul's saying here, a huge part of my conversion, my coming to Christ, was the fact that he chose me. Though it seems like we chose him, he really chose us. And then notice that in his choosing, he says that then God called me. He says in verse 15b, and he called me by his grace. Now, there's two things going on there. He called him into the kingdom, and then he called him to a life of being an apostle and a life of serving. So Paul's got, you guys know this, Paul had like an immediate experience on the road to Damascus where where through that blinding light, Christ revealed himself to him, he called him immediately into being a follower of Jesus, and then immediately into a life of ministry to the Gentiles. So Paul's saying, my conversion, and my calling were like one. They were right there. I, I got called immediately because God chose me and then he says in verse 16a he says it was all about Christ he says he was pleased to reveal his son to me and we don't have time to do a full exegesis of this this morning but 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 that word son there do we all understand that's loaded like he's not using it like we use that word today like, I got a son, his name is Paul, that's my son's name. No, what what commentators point out is that when he says son there, this is an ontological term. It's a term of being. It's a term referring to the divine second person of the Trinity, God's son. His name is Jesus. And, And he's saying that he revealed himself to me. Now, what I find interesting about that is that the ESV is one of the only translations that says he revealed himself to me, And they do that because in the context, he's talking about the Damascus Road experience here, where Jesus indeed did reveal himself to the Apostle Paul. And so they translate it here too. But the actual literal translation here, and some of you have it in front of you, is that he revealed his son in me. Because that's really what the word is, in me. Fascinating. So so really what Paul is saying here is I had an inward experience in which the Son of God became so real to me because He revealed Himself in me and who He is, and as a result of that, I became a follower of Him. That's His salvation. So add all this up, He was chosen, He was called, it was all about Christ. God was reaching out to Paul, and then in furthering his case, Here that all this stems from God, he talks at length then about his A.D. experience. Look at verses 16b through 24. He says, In order that I might preach him, Christ, among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who is Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ." They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorify God because of me. Now, you can read those words and say, gosh, a lot of stuff there I don't get because it's like talking about first century stuff, but what's he saying there? Just notice three things he's telling us there that happened in his life after he came to Jesus, and those three things are he became a follower of Jesus… He then engaged in fellowship with other believers, and then he started to fulfill his ministry. This is going to be very important for us as we start to talk about our journeys here in a a minute. First, notice he says he became a follower of Jesus. You're saying, where's that? Look at verses 17 and 18 again. He says, I went into Arabia. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem. Now, 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 the question is, why did Paul go to the desert for three years before he did anything? I mean, you and I go to the desert because we have air conditioning and water, and it's really nice here, and it's Scottsdale and all that, but you guys know that that that's not always been the history of the world. As my dad said to me when I first moved here six years ago, he said, you do know that even the Indians moved away a couple hundred years ago, don't you? He said, leave it to the white man to go to the desert and say, let's build a city here. He said, that's just not normal. And in the history of the world, it's not So why did Paul go to the desert for three years where there weren't that many people? Well, it's obvious. He went there to be with God. He went there to learn how to follow his newfound Savior in a time of meditation and stealing away. He spent three years learning how to follow Jesus down in the desert. It was all about, I'm a follower of Christ. I better get with it. And he says, I didn't even consult with anyone else. And then after three years, in verse 18, it says he went up to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas, who we know is Peter. And I would submit to you that this was the beginning of his rich fellowship and relationality with the other Christians. That word visit there is actually a very powerful word. We translate it visit here. We think big whip. He visited him. That word literally means to visit, to get to know. That comes from theological dictionary of the New Testament, to visit in order to get to know. It's a term that doesn't mean you just had a Starbucks with somebody and talked about sports. No, it's a term that means that you sat down, and some of you have had this experience, and you started to tell your stories. You started talking about your journey. You started talking about rich things of your life and how God intersects with your life and where you're going and what your dreams are and all of those things. It was a rich relationality that Paul begins to describe here. So he experienced rich fellowship, and he was learning how to relate to brothers and sisters in Christ, and then he says, I fulfilled my ministry. He says in verses 21 to 24, I went to Syria and Cilicia, and started ministering to Gentiles, and I had this reputation that I used to persecute the church, but now I was changed, and they even glorified God because of me. Now folks, as you add all this up, this idea of angry, ambitious, advancing and then chosen called Christ, and then following fellowship and fulfilling. As you link all that together, if you don't see anything else in all of this, please see this. And that is that Paul's entire journey and pathway to God, the way he saw and describes his B.C. Christ A.D. experience, was all about what God had done in and through him, and his main line of argument that this is from God, now don't miss this, he says, is mostly seen in my changed life. He says, you be the judge. Does this sound like I went to self-help therapy and became a different person? Or could this be because I've been with the living God, and the living God has changed me, So much so that I'm no longer angry, ambitious, and advancing. I'm now following and fellowshipping and fulfilling. And and he says, who else could do that but God? That's his main line of argument here. And and he's talking about an inward change. Do we all understand that? I mean, you know, the way many Christians tell their stories now is, you know, I, I used to drink and smoke and chew and go with girls that do and all that, but now I don't. And Paul's not saying any of that. He's saying, yeah, they were outward stuff, but it's the inward things that changed. I used to be angry. I used to be really ambitious, and all I lived for was the next acquisition. And he says, "But, but God chose me, and He called me, and He revealed Himself in my inward parts through His Son, Christ. And now my life is marked by intimacy with God and rich relationality with other believers. And he's saying, wow, only God could do something like this. And this is the change that he's trumpeting here in the latter half of Galatians 1 as proof that the gospel is not something that he or anybody else made up, but something that comes from God. And you see, as I got into that, over the last couple of weeks I thought, I think there's something really rich in this for you and I. I think there's something really relevant in this for you and I, how you and I function today. You see, somebody once said, and you guys have heard this phrase before, somebody once said that you as a Christian may be the only gospel that somebody ever reads. It's true, especially in our day and age. Less and less people are reading the Bible. Less and less people are picking up a Bible and saying, how can I find God? But they are reading you, because you see, you're in relationship with them every day. And though people might set up straw man arguments against God, and you and I hear them all the time… Here's one thing they can't argue with, your experience. They can dismiss it and say you're nuts and that you're a loon or something like that. But at the end of the day, it's your experience. And I don't know if you see this, guys, but Paul had the guts to say, look at my life, look at my experience, you be the judge. Because I'm telling you, God is real, and I'm living proof of that. I mean, he just sets himself up here. He's saying God reveals himself to us and then uses our journey to show himself to others. So so what does this mean for you and I today? I'm going to give you two take-home points here to take with you in your week ahead and, and as a practical application, and then we'll try to soften this a little bit as we leave so that you don't go out with too much anxiety inside of you as we've set up this big task. The first thing is know what God has accomplished in you. I think that's the first thing Paul did here. He was very aware of what God had done for him and even what God had done in him. In other words, Paul is masterful here. I don't know if you picked up on it, on realizing his story, God's story, the gospel, as it intersected with Paul's own journey. And he was very aware of that. He was very aware of what the gospel was, and he was able to communicate it with clarity when he says there that the divine son was revealed in me. I just love that. I mean, the way I hear some people communicate the gospel today, they say, you know what? Don't you hate this one? Jesus is my co-pilot. I can remember when that first came out. I remember thinking, well, one, that's like that's like theologically wrong because you're not your co-pilot; he's your Lord, you idiot. But then I thought to myself, the second thing is the second thing I thought is is, is what a what a crass and, and I know it's like earthy and down to earth, but I thought, could could you do, grow up? I mean, he's my co-pilot. No, He's the incarnate Son of God who has revealed Himself to this world in awesome, life-giving ways. Why don't you say it like that? Why don't you say it in such a way that gives some credence and grit to the gospel? He's my co-pilot. He's my buddy. I just just want to barf when I hear people say that. (laughs) So, Paul knew the gospel. He said, He revealed His Son to and in me And then, I love this too, he's clear on what happened in his own soul. He goes, I went from anger and ambition to fulfillment of my mission and relationality. And he was just keenly aware of God's story as it intersected with his story. And so the question I have for you this morning is how aware are you and me, I guess, of God's same movement in our lives? Here's the real hard thing. If somebody asked you to do what Paul did here, could you do it? If you, if somebody asked you, To say, I want you to give three words, just two or three words, to describe your BC experience. And then just two or three words to describe what it was like coming to Christ. And then just two or three words to describe what it's been like since. And you need to communicate all of that in less than 13 verses. Could you do that? I'm going to suggest you in a moment here that people love stories, and that's why they're interested in your story. But one thing we all know, people don't like long, drawn-out, laborious stories, do they? And we all know that because when we're hearing somebody tell a story and it goes like 15, 20 minutes long, and then they say at the end of 15 minutes, and to make a long story short, and we're like, that ship sailed at the five-minute mark. I can tell you that right now and I've been feigning interest for the last 10 minutes, like get to the end of this thing. Let's just move. We all do that. And, and, and so we need to be able to tell our story in a way that, that gets to the point, right? And that's what Paul does here. I mean, literally three words. I, I was angry, ambitious, advancing, and, and, and then called, chosen Christ, and then following, and, 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 and fellowshipping, and, and fulfilling. So what would you do just very quickly, we're running out of time fast, but I thought about it this week, and I thought, you know, if I had to communicate my story as God has worked in me, I, I would use two words to describe my B.C. experience. and be very different than Paul's. I would say that I was thirsty and tired. I really was. I, I grew up in an upper-middle-class home, as you guys know, and I didn't want or need much, and yet having all the things given to me By the time I was 17, I was so thirsty, I thought this can't be all there is. It it just can't be about this. And I was so thirsty for more, and it was more on an inward level, and I was just tired, even by the age of 17, of all the the world's treadmills, you know. And I can remember feeling that as a 17-year-old. And and I would just say, I resonate with Jesus' words when He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I thought, that's me. I'm thirsty and tired. And then when I came to Christ, I've said this before, but I would use these two words to describe my conversion. It was about coming home and then receiving help. I, I was a messed up young kid, and, and, and so when I came to Christ, I breathed such a big sigh of relief because I felt like I was home. I felt like this is where my soul had been longing for all my life, to be in relationship with Christ that was forgiving and free. We're gonna talk about freedom next week. But I also realized I needed help, and, and he became my source of help in every time of need. So my conversion was so critical about coming home and receiving help. And then I laugh at this. If I had to describe my life since Christ, I would call it a good thirst and a good tired. In other words, I'm still thirsty and tired. I I, I still want more of God, but no longer is that I'm a lost thirsty person. I'm a found thirsty person who can't wait for heaven and can't wait to know more of him this side of heaven and I get tired at the end of the day, and yet I get tired at the end of the day and say, it's a good tired because I served Him, and I loved His people, and I was with people, and, 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 and though now I'm ready to watch NCIS, I'm, it's a good tired, and, and, and I'm okay with that. If you had to craft your own story, and that's really your homework, it's really not hard, just write on a napkin, write in the margin, spend some time under this week, two or three words to describe each movement of God in you, and then be able to just practice it. Driving down the road, practice telling it in four to five minutes or less, because that's all you really got with people. We live in a soundbite culture, and when you're on a plane or like me, I lunch with a guy Friday where we we're talking stories, and I mean, just be able to insert it like Paul does here. It's amazing how God will use that. And that's the second thing I would simply share with you here is is the second take-home point is to share your story with others. Share what God has done through you. You know, one of the things that amazes me about people in general, and this has been true for all generations ever since the history of the world, is that people relate more to stories than anything else. It's true. Why did Jesus tell parables? I, I mean, Jesus, you guys are saying Jesus didn't preach like we preach today. He really didn't. You know, Jesus didn't come along and say, well, let me explain Isaiah 1 verse 15 to you. See, the, the Hebrew means this, and it's tied to the noun here, and da, da, da. Jesus didn't do any of that. He said, Isaiah 1 says this, now let me tell you a story. Why did Jesus do that? Because he knew that people related to stories. I, I know that. I, I probably teach too much from the pulpit because I, that's just me. But I got to tell you, every time I'm teaching, like doing some more of the exegesis stuff, I, I, I look out and I see really droopy eyes. I won't pick on any of you because that would be mortifying, I know. But I, I get it. I, I look and, and I'm the same way. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, he's going on and on about this word and this sentence and all this. And then the second I stop doing that and I say, you know, when the other day I was walking down the road, I see people just perk right up. I mean, they just look up. In fact, one guy, you know, but, hey, he's going to tell a story. This ought to be good, you know. And 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 I just and then afterward, people come up to me, and nobody ever says, "Boy, I got to tell you, that exegesis, woo, that was so rich. Oh, I can't wait to send that tape to my friend." I just never hear that. I always hear, you know, that story you told at the end. I got to tell you, I got one just like that. And then and then, and then we hear swap stories, of what God has done, and it reminds me that we all relate to stories. I'm going to tell you one here in a second, and you're going to like it. We all relate to stories. And so that gives great hope for you, is that though there is a place for apologetics and all that stuff, and we do that all the time here, I think the kind of the foundation, the modus operandi, how God functions, is through using your story in the lives of others. That, that's really what He wants to do. But you got to know it. And as Bill Hybels says, you've got to take a walk across the room, just a walk across the room and share it with those around you. Now, I know how some of you think. You think, well, Jamie, my story's a mess. I mean, it's not been all that clean, and you know, it's still ongoing, and I haven't quite arrived, and so I don't know if I can be as gutsy as Paul to just throw my story out there and say you be the judge on whether God is real or not. That might backfire in my face. In a very real way, you're saying I'm a hypocrite. And I just don't know, even though I'm in the kingdom, I just don't know how powerful my story would be. Let me make a quick comment on hypocrisy, then one story, and then we're going to wrap up, and we'll be done. Here's the the point. I think when it comes to hypocrisy, people care much less about perfection or even consistency than they do authenticity and honesty. And and I listen very close. I'm not saying that, that consistency is not important for us as Christians in our walk and testimony. Of course it is. In fact, the definition of a hypocrite is somebody who says one thing and does another. So the whole definition of a hypocrite means you're inconsistent and that's wrong. So certainly consistency is important. But think about this with me. Nobody is perfectly consistent, right? I mean, consistency is always a moving target. I mean, is Dave's consistency the same as mine? Some days he's better, some days not, but it's just very different. And so none of us are absolutely consistent. And even where the line is, I don't know. But here's what I do know. Most people who have a problem when it comes to Christians that they label hypocrites, their problem is more, now tell me if this isn't true, with their arrogance and pride than it is even with their inconsistency. And here's what I mean by that we all know people who are very boisterous about their Christianity. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do, and I don't go to certain movies, and I boycott this brand, and you should boycott it too, because they don't uphold the values that I have. And they're very vocal about all their faith, and they do that at work, and then the boss finds porn on their work computer. And everybody in work is going, man, is that guy a hypocrite. Like, you know, I can't believe it. He says all these things, and all of a sudden now he's, you know, addicted to pornography or having an affair or whatever, and and he's a hypocrite. But you see, I sometimes wonder what would happen if this person was more humble in their posture and in their witness and in their storytelling, and I wonder what would happen if there was humility and authenticity even about their struggle with sin and incorporate that into their story. Quick story. In 1982, I'd been saved for about a year, and I was still struggling with a lot. Still am in many ways, but I was really struggling back then. One of the things I did struggle with, even as a new Christian, was anger. I still struggle with that now. And my daughter's here, I gotta be honest. And so I still struggle with that now. But I really struggled with it back then. In my freshman year of college, I had had a girlfriend in high school, and she was not a believer, and I was now a believer, so we knew it probably wouldn't last, but we were trying to still make a go of it. This was back before the days of cell phones and internet and all that, but I received a letter from her in my freshman year of college, and again, I was walking with Christ. I mean, I'm praying every day, I joined this group called Campus Crusade for Christ, I'm just rocking on my faith, I'm just on fire for Jesus, I get this letter from her that basically says I've gone back to my old boyfriend, and I knew his name, and, and, and that we're over. And I was so mad that I took my tennis racket, and, and nobody was in the room. It was in a dorm room, and I was alone there. Everybody else at school. And I, just, and I just smashed it against the wall. Just smashed my tennis racket against the wall, broke it in a million pieces. My roommate comes home about an hour later, and he sees this smashed tennis racket. Now, my roommate's not a Christian, and, and I'm telling about Jesus all the time. And, and he sees this smashed tennis racket, and he goes, What happened to your tennis racket? And you have a choice there. You can lie, which would be like one of the Ten Commandments. You don't want to do that. Or you just say, I said, well, I, I got a letter from so-and-so, and I, and I got so angry I smashed it against the wall. And then I said this to him. It was a very humble moment. I said, you know, I'm such a mess because I'm in love with Jesus, and I'm trying so hard to follow him, but I just know that I'm, I'm not even close to arriving yet. And I apologized to him, but I said, I know I owe you an apology too and I said, because I'm such an inconsistent witness. (laughs) And I said, it'll be a miracle if you ever come to Christ through me. (laughs) I'll never forget what he said. He looked at me and he said, Jamie, that's what I love about you. (laughs) He said, unlike a lot of Christians I know, you own your stuff, and you admit when you're wrong, and you do run to God. I see it all the time. I wake up, you're on your knees confessing something you did. And he said, I I see it all the time. And he said, I think I am going to come to Jesus someday. And indeed, he did. Uh, he said, and, and, and he said, and God might use you in that process. And I think God did. You see, I think sometimes just being really humble and authentic with people, even in the midst of our struggle and battle, is a witness. As long as you're not arrogant and prideful and trying to hide, as long as you are who you are in Christ, God says He will use that. That's enough. And that's been my journey for 32 years now as a Christian, and even you guys know as a pastor. That's my journey. I think Micah 6, verse 8 should be kind of our, our theme verse, maybe moving forward when it comes to our testimony. Micah 6, 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Here it is. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So I think if Christians just acted justly and loved mercy and walked humbly with their God, boy, would we rock the world around us but we rock it with love as God breathes His truth through us." You got a story. Don't be afraid to tell your story and see what God does. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the evident truth here in Galatians as Paul both models for us as well as lays out before us the reality that the gospel stems from you and you alone, but it's seen as it's played out in our lives. So, Father, I pray that as we all give some thought to how we would communicate our story in just a few words, handles that people can latch onto, and then as we dare to open up our lives to others around us with the story that you're still doing in and through us, that, God, you might use us, use us to lead others to the grace that we have found in Christ. As we go to the communion table now, Lord, meet us at this table. May you be honored and glorified through these elements. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.